Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. And yes, welcome back to Sermon on the Mount, part four of, I don't even know how many parts we're going to do, but we're only a few verses in, and it's been great. And I've gotten some good feedback from you guys, so it seems like you're enjoying it so far. The one thing I, if I wanted to, I guess, apologize about anything is I feel like listening back to some of the episodes, it sounds like I'm... (laughs) Like I feel like I'm learning as I go when it comes when it comes to the particular verses that we are going through. It's not as much that I've mastered this material and then I'm sharing it to you out of years of you know dwelling on it, which sometimes is the case. Uh, there are certain themes and passages and so on that I that is the reality. I've been studying that for a matter of years or at least a matter of months, and then am sharing insights that are much more articulated in a smoother, more crisp fashion. And in this case, it just, it feels like I'm doing it intentionally, though, but, like, kind of like, I want it, I want it to hit me kind of like the way I want it to hit you. I, I, I'm teaching and definitely doing lots of research and studying and putting out some thoughts and some episodes more organized than others in this Sermon on the Mount series, but... I wanted it to be a slightly different approach where you are watching me wrestle not only with the text, but wrestle with how to communicate it as it's hitting me in a fresh way. Hopefully that makes sense, but and hopefully the style's landing. Each episode is so important, and so that's why if you haven't listened to the previous, I would highly encourage you to, partly because we're in the part known as the macrisms. Well, they're actually known as the beatitudes or beatitudes or however you pronounce that. Latin word, but I actually call them the macrisms, and if you want to know why, and or actually if you don't know why by this point, then clearly you have not listened to the previous few episodes. So go back and listen to those, because I don't want to spend this episode just reiterating everything I've already said. When we get through all the macrisms, I will do one episode kind of recapping some key things and putting in some fresh insights now that we've gone through it as we press through the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't want to recap today, okay? Like, the only thing I want to recap is this, all right? Before we get right into the text, it's the only thing I want to do is a recap. I want to just suggest to you that the macrisms um, and the content of the macrisms are pregnant with the theology of Matthew's gospel. And in fact, you can find all other places through the gospel of Matthew where each particular macrism comes into effect being demonstrated by one of the characters through the narrative flow. So in this way, you can say that the macrisms serve as like a compact dose of Jesus's kingdom message and it's so like it's this little package and as you unwrap it and unfolds there's so much more and you see all the macrisms come into play at some point in the gospel of Matthew so it's a little compact theology there but yeah so um, the second thing I wanted to do before we dive into the text 
is also tell you that, or I, in some ways remind you, but tell you that the macrosms serve as the first explanation of Jesus's kingdom message. So there's five major discourses in Matthew, um, and this is the first one. <laughs> After some narrative flow, some few comments from Matthew as the narrator, uh, here we have the first formal teaching of the new covenant, um, acting as an elaboration of Torah contextualized for the people of the kingdom here and now. I love how N.T. Wright brings this out. Um, you know, in, in his commentary, he's talking about how Jesus is going through, and there's a lot of typological connections between the Exodus, and so in, in that part of the Torah, and the Gospel of Matthew. And he says this, and I quote, In Deuteronomy, the people came through the wilderness and arrived at the border of the Promised Land, and God gave them a solemn covenant. Now Matthew has shown us Jesus coming out of Egypt through the water and the wilderness and into the land of promise. Here now is his new covenant, close quote. And yeah, he's referencing, you know, how Jesus came out of Egypt when he's an infant in chapter 2, verse 15. And then, of course, we have uh, his baptism in the, by John the Baptist. <laughs> and then we have him in the wilderness battling the devil um, in the sense of temptation, that's what I mean by battle in that case. But yeah, spiritual warfare, so no doubt. Battle. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, and then it, he, so through the wilderness and then into the promised land. And if you remember and you know your Bible well, you know that what happened at Sinai, at that part of the Exodus story, after God has rescued people out of uh, Egypt, it wasn't just, okay, you've been rescued, go do what you want. He brings them to Mount Sinai, brings Moses up the mountain. He invites all of Israel up the mountain, but they say, Moses, why don't you go talk to God? We're good, <laughs> which is a mistake. God wants us all to go up the mountain. <sighs> Side note. But yeah, so Moses goes up the mountain and gets the Torah. And, you know, yeah. So um, what the intentional language that's done here is that Jesus ascends the mountain. And of course, it's probably not like he's hundreds of yards away from the audience, but more like he goes up a little bit and elevates on this mount, whatever that looks like. But the point is, whether literal, metaphorical, or both, there's clearly typology between Jesus and Moses. And Moses being the mediator of that covenant, now it's Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. Tons of continuity and discontinuity continuity between the two. And we will have more to say about Jesus' relationship to Torah later in the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is going to make his, he's going to tell you what his relationship is to Torah. So that's coming soon. But my point of bringing this is up is that this is the first teaching of what it means to have the kingdom of God in breaking our reality right now. Not in full fruition and full form, but in breaking, and that there, the fabric of reality between old and new has been torn, and, and it's starting to have this light of all that is in that new reality. And this is part of that teaching. So, yeah, I really like that. I think this is exciting. Um, it, it, he's letting us know what it means to partake of his reign and the results of being under his kingship. And so that is going to be a large, well, theme <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount. So let's get into the text today. We're only covering two verses. Let's see if we can do this. But if you if you do have a Bible, I do encourage you to check it out either now or later and read it on your own, meditate on it. Don't let this be the only time you look at it. But Matthew 5, verse 6, reading from my own translation here. Um, and yes, here we go, Matthew 5, 6. Happy are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness because they will be satisfied by God. That's God's word for us right now. And 
as I have explained on previous episodes, won't go too much into this, but I have debated and I oscillate between these two different kinds of translations that are best represented, but, you know, either saying happy are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness or saying, like, congratulations to those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Because, of course, what Jesus is getting at here is, in, again, previous episodes, but, like, short summary, these aren't behaviors. These aren't something you, like, do or don't do. These are conditions of the heart. And as I've said, this is uh, the paradox of happiness based on the posture of the heart. Jesus is getting at someone's condition and celebrate. He's congratulating a certain kind of person. He's saying, congratulations. These are the people who are truly happy and mostly eschatologically happy. Not, not because everything is going fine and dandy for them right now, but they should ha- be happy and celebrate and be congratulated because they're the ones that have it figured out when it comes to the kingdom. And a lot of the reality with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is that it doesn't always mean that it works to your benefit right now. Well, because why? Well, well if Jesus is your king, <laughs> that's a good thing if he is. Uh, well, well, yeah, so if, God, if the triune God is your king, then... Well, you're at conflict with the current world systems who don't live that way. So, the, of course, all the macrisms have these kind of like eschatological reversals or like these consequential results that produce something that like, like yeah, that looks great. Like, oh my gosh, like, you know, uh, happy are those who are, are spiritually poor. And you're like, oh, that doesn't sound really like a good thing. And then you're like, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And you're like, well, that sounds good. That's the whole irony. The whole irony is that the paradox of happiness, which is what we all desire, is through a posture of the heart. Uh, and a posture of the heart that is usually frowned upon, or not by God, of course, but frowned upon as far as most people in society and most people culture and even other world religions. Um, a perfect example is when we talked about meekness or gentleness. Uh, that is not something that was celebrated. And the attributes like meekness or humility were, were not considered an admirable thing or desired in the ancient world. So if they are at all desired in your point of view or in our culture today, that's due to Christianity, <laughs> not because of pop culture. Anyways, okay, back to the text. Let me read that again so we can get back into it. Happy are those, or congratulations to those who are hungry and thirsting for righteousness because they will be satisfied by God. Now, here is something that I want to point out to you. that All these macrosms are just dripping with grace. And here's why. It's worth observing that this macrosm does not congratulate those who are, as a matter of fact, righteous. Instead, it lifts up those who are hungering and thirsting for it. The people who are hungering and thirsting, desperately desiring for conformity to the will of God. That, that's who's being congratulated here. And if, if you're like me, that is good news. That is gospel today to hear. Because it's, it's not that the, the, uh, the entrance bar to discipleship of Jesus means, hey, once you are in fact righteous, you can be my disciple. And now, and now no doubt, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying righteousness is incredibly important for being a disciple of Jesus. But that is not the entrance requirement to following him. In fact, that's the beauty of what he's saying is here. Happy are those, and you'd almost would think hungry would be, are those who are righteous. That's not what he says. Happy are those who are hungry and thirsting for righteousness. Residents of the king, God's kingdom need not 
be righteous to begin their discipleship journey. They simply need to long for it with a metaphorical intensity of hungering and thirsting. That's good news for us today. That's gospel. Now, let's talk about what righteousness is because uh, I love asking basic questions. Whenever I teach on text like this or anything like it, I love just to ask, hey, hey, everyone, like, what is righteousness? And you'd be surprised because every time I ask these type of basic questions, at first I get the look like, uh, that's a dumb question. Obviously it is. And then their facial expression changes. They're like, oh, that's a good question because I know it in my head, but I can't articulate it. That's exactly why there's a gap in our knowledge. I want to challenge us to never be afraid to ask the basic or simple questions, uh, especially about the text. Like, you know, as you're reading, huh, hungry and thirsting for righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? And that's why to do a good word study or something, you have to always like take into account that like, for example, when Paul, uh, the apostle Paul talks about righteousness, uh, by the way, Greek word, dikaiosune, so much fun to say. One of my favorite words to pronounce, dikaiosune, means righteousness or justice. So yeah, righteousness and justice in, uh, well, Hebrew and in Greek are synonymous. You can't talk about righteousness without talking about justice and you can't talk about justice without righteousness. I like that. Of course, there's other words that are related to that and can communicate different aspects of that. But yeah, as far as dikaiosune, which is the word used here, um, Paul uses it too, but Paul uses it in a pretty different way. Paul usually uses righteousness uh, not exclusively and definitely, I mean, definitely not exclusively, but sometimes in this forensic way of talking about like how we have been accredited with Christ's righteousness. It's been imputed to us. God looks at us as if we are just as righteous as Christ because of what Christ has done for us and because of our union with Christ, all that good stuff that we, if you don't know, we should talk about another time or should just talk about another time anyway because I need to hear that more often too, right? Anyways, in Matthew's lexicon, Dekaisune, righteousness, justice, is overwhelmingly concerned with right conduct, with living in a way that God requires or desires. Now, I want to state that a little bit more memorably, okay? Righteousness is proper conduct conformed to God's character. It's ultimately God's work of setting the world to rights and our participation in his saving activity. So it's God setting the world to right through right actions, right conduct, conforms to his character, of course, but it's our participation. So when we are being righteous, we are acting in a way that is consistent with God's character, and it touches the real world and brings about um, results and affects the world in such a way that makes it look more like his kingdom when we act righteously. So for Matthew, righteousness is far more holistic than just this forensic imputed righteousness. It's, it's about the whole person acting in accordance with God's nature, his will, and his coming king, kingdom, which is a good little like, place to like, think about for a second because righteousness is like an ethical framework in the present that is influenced by God's eschatological vision and uh, we use the word eschatology and eschatological and eschaton a lot on this podcast so let's just quickly go over those things eschatology is the study of last things and i put air quotes last things or what i like to bear see ultimate things eschatology is really the subject not just of like the end times if you will which we are in the end times. <laughs> we have been since the days of Jesus. It's been inaugurated. Um, I'll get off my soapbox, okay. Um, eschatology is the subject of the things pertaining to coming to their ultimate aim or goal. And so, yeah, it has to do with last times. And um, that's why 
when Jesus returns, we don't just call it the second coming. We don't just call it the parousia. We also call it the eschaton because it's the day that human history as we know it ends and, you know, you have judgment day and you have the new beginning, if you will, the new creation where, um, yeah, God sets all things right in this kind of like full and final and coming to fruition sort of way. So when we say adjectives like eschatologically or eschatological, we're, we're, we're communicating in such a way that like, hey, this is God's aim and goal of redemption. So when I say like God's eschatological vision of the kingdom of God, I, I mean that that's, his, that's what everything is aiming towards that uh, the reality of God's pervasive reign as king in heaven will pervade earth. And we've talked about that, and we will continue to do so. But yeah, so righteousness is an ethical framework that looks at the present in light of the future, if that makes sense. In light of God's kingdom values, his eschatological vision, we act in such a way that in some ways brings that into reality here and now. Not perfectly by any means. In fact, at at one point, (laughs) when God's reign truly is pervasive, we won't need to behave in certain ways. What I mean by that is like, you won't need to forgive someone who has hurt you when there's no more sin. So they won't have the temptation to hurt you and they won't give in to that temptation to hurt you and you won't hurt them back by retaliation, etc. So yeah, there's certain things in ethics that just won't apply anymore. But my point is that we act in such a way that is modeling the aim of getting the world to its eschatological vision. That's a lot. Okay? <laughs> All right, back to this. So, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Huh. This fourth macroism ties closely into, if you looked at Matthew six thirty three, which is that famous passage, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Key word, righteousness, to kaisune. And all these things, um, which in that context, talking about daily provisions, and all these things will be added to you. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so when we seek God's kingdom first, lending all these things, the daily provisions, will be satisfied by God. I think that relates to what is said here about uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness and the consequential result of being someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness being satisfied, I think that really correlates. It's like God saying this, you worry about the kingdom and I'll worry about you. And there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, obviously I'm not saying don't quit your job. I mean, that's part of how you bring about the kingdom of God. That's part of how you live as a kingdom representative. That's how you live as a disciple. You you work, you contribute to society, and you do so in a way that um, models the ethics of the kingdom. So, of course, I'm not saying that. So, please, 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 please don't say I'm saying that. But, nevertheless, it's like God saying, you worry about the kingdom, and I'll worry about you. So, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will inevitably and consequentially be satisfied by God. And it's that it's another verb that is a divine passive, like all these are basically in the macrosms with the exception of the first and last one. It's all passive verbs. It's it's not that you fill yourself. It's that God fills you. It's it's kind of like um and you will inherit the uh, will inherit the earth, as we talked about in the previous episode. It's not that you grasp the earth and <laughs> obtain it by grasping for it by your active ability. No, it's 
You don't merit it. You inherit it. It's a passive verb. You are a recipient of the action of the verb. <laughs> Grammar lesson there. But as a future tense, a future passive verb here, what it's saying is like, hey, you know, it's a divine passive as Greek grammarians talk about it. God is the one who's doing it. God will be the one who satisfies that. So if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you worry about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and God will worry about satisfying that. And I, what I love about this is this is a prayer that God will answer 100% of the time. I mean, God answers every prayer, but God will respond with a yes every time. When you and I hunger and thirst, and I mean, let, let's really consider what type of posture and prayer would merit being able to say that we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Not like a casual, oh yeah, I'd like to do the right thing. Like hungering and thirsting, being famished for God's justice to pervade our heart so that it affects our world. Now, when we pray in such a way that is desperate, parched and thirsty and needing God's righteousness to be in us, that our conduct would match his character, God will honor that prayer. He will fill that. He will satisfy that. I mean, this, this whole verse, this whole passage is food imagery. <laughs> Hungering and thirsting is food imagery. And then the, the verb for uh, being satisfied by God from the, comes from the Greek word chortazo. Oh yeah, it's fun. Chortazo, and it's a it's a graphic word in the Greek used for um, uh, fattening ama, animals, and it implies being well fed. Actually, sorry, it's not chortazo. It's chortazomai. So correcting myself on the spot there. If anyone else doesn't know Greek, and that's what I meant. Chortazomai. But yeah, it's so chortazomai is a graphic word in Greek. In other words, when you're trying to fatten an animal animal or implies being very well fed. It's not like, hey, I'm kind of full. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm stuffed to the brim. I can't move. I need to lay on the couch. Like, I'm so full. I'm saturated. It's what you would do when you're like trying to make that cow as big as possible so you can get as much money for all the meat that is on that thing. Like, that's the idea here. Hungering and thirsting, your spiritual belly in this metaphor is so empty, desperate for righteousness, but God satisfies it. That is what we're getting at. And that's what God's getting at by promising to fill that, or you know, what Jesus is saying here. It's, it's no less than being absolutely full to the brim. The one who starves for righteousness will be satisfied by God. In essence, God's kingdom is where no one goes hungry or thirsty anymore. They will be filled with all the literal and metaphorical meanings that are be taken with this macroism. And I mean not just metaphorical, I also mean literal because, um, you know, eschatologically literal. Like, you know, there is hunger and starvation in the world right now and all that. But like, because I mean, even when in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus uh multiplied the food in both occasions in Matthew 14, 14 and in Matthew 15, the crowds were satisfied. They were chortazamai by the amount of food. They, they had plenty. They, there was extra. There was abundance. They were full. So Jesus was modeling and meta, like, kind of providing an appetizer to use more food <laughs> analogies and metaphors uh, of what God's kingdom will be like. There's going to be more than enough. But, but what this get, is getting at, of course, is not just food. It's getting at the idea of hungering and thirsting for what? Righteousness. Right 
conduct that imitates God's heart. You know, you could even say it that way. Like, it's hungering. It's the desperation and absolute longing to have your heart be in step and in match and synchronized beat with God's heart. That's the idea here. I want so long my heart to beat with the beat of his heart so that when people see my heart, they see his heart. God's going to honor that. That's what he wants. So God's people will be satisfied with a world where God rules and where righteousness reigns. And check out 2 Peter 3.13 where it says exactly like that. Actually, you know what? I got to turn you there real quick. 2 Peter 3.13, that might be helpful to read this verse because this is a helpful cross-reference here. 2 Peter 3.13. All right. (laughs) But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells where righteousness, and then the Greek word there kind of like has this idea, where righteousness has made its home. We're waiting for new heavens, new earth, where righteousness dwells, where righteousness reigns supreme, it's where its its home is. So God's people will be satisfied with a world where God rules and righteousness reigns. Because after all, where righteousness reigns, so does true shalom, so does true, you know, peace, harmony, tranquility. Because when, when the residents of the kingdom truly act righteously, there will be no threat to the harmony of the kingdom. You know, when we all hunger and thirst for our heartbeat to match God's, to have our conduct match his character, and to be an expression of his character, there will be no threat to that kind of peace in that world. And so, in many senses, I mean, kind of like the other macroisms, we're signing a permission slip to say, you know what? God, not my will, but your will be done. Like, you can do heart surgery, and you can have your way in my heart and in my life. (laughs) Let righteousness uh, not just enter into me, but flow right through me. That's a prayer that God will honor. And I pray that really challenges you today. So, um, I think at the beginning of this episode, I said we're going to do two uh, verses? No, we're doing one because I think that gives us enough to think about for right now. And uh, next episode, will I want to show you, and to give you a little foreshadowing here, I want to show you how this macroism about righteousness it plays such an important role in transitioning us into talking about mercy, which will be the next one. But to give you that final thought as we conclude here today, um, I want us to be leaving here thinking about this even more, that um, I want this to be a prayer. I don't want us just to read this verse and leave here being like, cool, now I know a lot more facts and information. No, I want this information to be tran- lead to transformation. If information stays in the head and doesn't travel the heart, what's the point? So um, I want to congratulate those of us who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness because God will satiate that person with the very conduct and character and heartbeat that makes the world more and more like the kingdom of heaven. And until one day when the kingdom of heaven truly does pervade this world. Well, that's it for today, my friends. I hope you feel just as challenged as I do. And then, of course, we'll see you next time on Adventures in Theology.